You're listening to The Running Public. From marathoners to mud runners, we all have the same goal. Get to the finish line faster. That's right. This podcast is for you guys, the running public. This is the Running Public's Training Tuesday. Training Tuesday is where we talk about training only. One topic, we dive deep, we explore it completely. It's training, it's Tuesday. Training Tuesday. Tuesday. Kirk, it's good to see your smiling face. We didn't check in one time this weekend, which is kind of rare for us. Yeah, usually we can't go, what, six hours without chatting these days? And yet, I was fully aboard the, the birthday train this weekend. Well, what do you mean the birthday train? Well, Mira, birthday turned, Mira, she turned three. And we had the birthday party here, and then the birthday party with the other side of the family the uh, yeah. Lisa's parents. So I forget how big of a deal birthday parties are when you're that young. Like that is the center of your year other than like Christmas and Easter. Then like your birthday like stands out on the calendar. She didn't really get it. She's three. Like she unwrapped presents and stacked them. She was concerned. Like she would take them and stack them and move to the next thing. And she didn't really know they were hers for whatever okay. reason, but she knew it mattered because Brayden's birthday is 11 days earlier. So she knew it was a big deal because he had just had a big deal but she didn't really get that it was actually her party this time. And mm. I don't know, maybe she's a little slow. I wish everybody could meet her because I haven't seen her in like a year, but she has to be one of the more animated, expressive little children who like always looks like they're thinking like well beyond their years. Like you look into her eyes and you're like, there's way too much going on in your brain for how old you are. She says stuff every day that we think, man, we gotta be careful with this one. I, I sense that the minute I met her the first time, I was like, she's looking at me funny and she's doing it on purpose. Yeah. Like, she doesn't like something about me. I don't know what it is. She was like eight months old then. Yesterday, my sister was over. We were watching the NBA playoffs and she said something like slightly inappropriate to us, kind of under her breath. And the other kids were in the other room. Mira was like 15 feet away. Mira started laughing at it. <laughs> we looked like she, there's no way she got that, but she laughed at the appropriate time and she, so, yeah, she, she's the one. What was said? Can you? Share? I don't even remember. Okay. So, anyways, I, that's what I did this weekend. What, what were you up to? Uh, I'm just glad to be here talking to you today, Bracken. I had a, I had a scare of uh, crazy proportions on Friday this weekend, which I did not expect. Are we being? Are we using hyperbole here, or was this a real? I'm happy to be here. I'm happy to be here. I had the biggest scare I've ever had in the in the woods, in mother nature, um, in my 37 years of existence on Friday afternoon. Really? Yes. Scared the shit out of me. Do you want to know what happened? Did you get caught in a snare? No, I didn't. But that wouldn't even come close to what I feel like happened on Friday to me. So I came within, I'm going to approximate here, but I think I came within about three feet of being mauled by a black bear on Friday. What size bear? Does it even matter what size bear? No, but yes. I, I'm not detracting from your story, but like big enough to look you in the eye if it stood up. Oh, yeah. Yeah. 
All right, so big enough to handle its business. Bears are deceiving because they have four legs, Bracken, and they walk, you know, closer to the ground. It didn't do the classic stand up on its hind legs, so I didn't get like a, an accurate measurement. So, like, legit charged you. You got to hear this. So I can't, I can't make this story up. Were you alone? I was with my girlfriend Jess and my buddy TJ. Uh, if I was alone, I think I would be dead. So. What happened was I'm a bow hunter. I bow hunt deer. And part of that process is walking and scouting the land before you hunt it. Right. And so I had a new piece of property that I received permission to hunt in Wisconsin. And I had Friday afternoon off of work. So I said, I'm going to go make the drive and walk around the woods and just like get to know the place. I convinced my girlfriend Jess to come. I got my buddy TJ to get off of work early and come join me. Thank God. Cause I was going to go by myself. Um, and we were walking through the woods and we were being loud and chatting and it was a thick, dense forest. And anyways, maybe like 30 yards away, we heard sticks cracking. And that's not uncommon when you're walking through the woods. Like you might startle a deer and it'll run away. And so it was thick brush. So we all ducked down to see what was running away because it was like thick brushy around our eye level. And we all dropped our heads and coming at me as fast as I've ever seen anything run in its life straight at me was a black bear. I mean, not running away, not just casually trotting through the forest and I happened to be in the way. This black bear was sprinting at me like a German shepherd that you just tossed a Frisbee for. And it was going out to get it. And you were the Frisbee. I was the Frisbee. I was the most terrifying experience I've ever had in my entire life. Did you stand your ground? So this bear, and after it's like dead quiet in the woods, dead quiet. And all you hear is like, if you drove a truck through the woods, that's what it sound. This bear had no regard for the logs, for the bushes, for the trees. It was bowling, bawling, cannonballing, whatever you want to call it, through like the vegetation straight at me, like no care in the world. So all you hear are sticks cracking and, and just like this general rustle, which is just way too loud for like a quiet woods. We're in the middle of nowhere. Um, and instinctually, I look down and I just say, oh, no. And we all turn around to run back the way we came instinctively. Like I didn't even think about this. This thing's coming at me like 30 miles an hour. I bet you I saw it 30 yards away. And from the time it got to me was a second and a half at most. It's like in a flash. And so I turned to run and I'm leading the trail. Like there's three of us walking down this path. So uh, I'm in front. So the bear has me targeted because it wasn't out in front of us. We turn to run. I look back over my shoulder and it's pretty much already on me. And so I turn around to face the bear to brace myself for impact. And I just raise my arms in the air and shout. And the thing stopped on a dime three feet from me, thought for a half a second about what it was going to do, and then turned around and ran the other way. It was absolutely terrifying. Put yourself in that, in those shoes for a second. It was wild. Man. But anyways, I'm here to talk about it. So I was just shook up. Oh my God. So I was so close to it. Like if I did not turn around, I think that bear would have jumped on my back. But, and the other two were 10 yards in front of me because they were trailing behind as we were walking through the woods. So I was like alone. When I turned around and screamed, they both turned around and saw the bear right next to me. So like they had perspective on it, like of me about to be mauled by a bear. So they were both more shook up than I was because I was like too close to it to comprehend, if that makes sense. Anyways, thank God I turned around. The bear ran away 
like 20 yards, then stopped and looked at us. And we're like, oh, fuck, it's going to come back again. And then it sort of just galloped slowly the other direction. And that was it. In all my years in the woods, I've been hunting since I was eight years old. With my dad, like 19 years of it, um, uh, 29 years, I'm sorry. I have uh, never experienced that. And we've all come upon black bears. They're usually skittish. They never come towards you. This bear had one thing in mind, and it was to like harm me. Out of, I mean, from 30 yards away, we didn't startle it. We were being loud and talking. Uh, just beeline straight for me. Like, like ears slicked back. Like, you know, when like a dog takes off explosively after it's going to jump off the dock or it's going to, it was low to the ground as fast as it could go. I've never seen something move that fast. And bears are so fast. Oh my God. My heart's racing thinking about it. How long were you jittery for? Uh, I never seen the look. My, my buddy TJ, who's a big guy, an athletic guy, played college football. He's like, you know, much larger than I am. Very muscular. Uh, looked like he saw a ghost. He said, dude, I got to get the F out of here. And we basically ran back to the truck. Um, and I was so shook up. I couldn't like really drive yet. It was wild. I've never felt that close to being mauled by an animal. Man, I'm good thing. You stood your ground and got loud and big dude. And then when I turned around, then TJ who's six, two or six, three stood up and raised his hands and yelled and he had grabbed a big stick somehow. And I think just like the combo was like just in enough time, but um, you can't predict it. And you know what? We don't have to dwell on this any longer, but you always think like, you know, when I'm out running, it'll never happen to me. Or like when you're running in the mountains, especially like a grizzly bear, for example, that's a different story yet. But like, I always think, oh, I'll handle it differently or I'll be prepared or I'll, this is what I would do in that situation. I'll tell you what, I had a second and a half to think about what to do because it shot out of the brush. Like you wouldn't even have had time to blink. Mm -hmm. So like I can see how it happens, like those rare instances where somebody actually gets harmed, like I didn't have a chance. If that bear wanted me dead, I would have been dead. That's crazy. Isn't that wild? It's insane. Insane. Anyway, so that but was my Friday. It. Yeah, yeah. And I'm here and I'm, I keep like trying to replay it in my head and like I can barely remember it because it's like some sort of shock to the system. But all I know is I'm so glad I turned around to brace for impact that it stopped it from charging. Man, it's too bad there was no footage of it. That's exactly what I said on the drive home when I was cooling off. I was like, man, that would have been just some epic. We, but we would have had to have the cameras rolling constantly because it just happened so fast. Right. There was no way. But um, You going to hunt that land? I went right. That's why I don't even know if I want to go back. Um, and... Uh, it makes me think about all my trail running I do. I mean, if I was just running and that bear popped out of the woods and came up behind me, like I would have been dead. But we were, if I had my headphones in, for example, mm -hmm. like we all do, it just put like so much into perspective for me in a weird way. Like I wish it didn't happen because I don't think I will be able to go out on the trails like I always do without like some bear spray on my side or like something. Like I'm going to have PTSD from this for a while. Would you have had time to get bear spray up? <laughs> I, if I knew where it was, yes. Or if I had a pistol in my pocket, um, I, I mean, I had probably two seconds from the time I realized it was a bear to the time it would have been on me. And I can pull something out that I feel like I could have, but I would have had to have been perfectly timed. That's bizarre, man. Well, thanks. Thanks for being here today. Yeah. Thanks for having me. Thanks for having me, folks. I'm here. I'm alive. I have not a scratch on my body. Just a bruised ego. Well, I have no story to top that. So let's get right into the Q&A. Yeah, let's roll with that. I'm just happy to talk about anything. Well, if you're happy, let's start out with question number one. 
Are you guys going to do anything to improve sound on the podcast? Is our sound bad? <laughs> it's the first I've heard of it. I was a little echoey our last episode, I noticed. Yeah. I, don't, I don't know why. Uh, are we going to do anything, Bracken? Um, well, now you've got me thinking. That's like if someone comes up and be like, hey, man, what are you going to do about that BL you've got? Suddenly you start thinking, man, am I the smelly person that everyone knows about? And and I'm just finding out now. So I, I thought our, our audio is pretty solid in terms of like our production value is pretty decent, I think, for for the size of our podcast. I do know that when we have people that call in using Bluetooth headphones or in bad location, their audio is pretty bad. But now they've got me. We've got me thinking. So I guess I'm opening up the, the airways here to to the audience. Message us and tell us specifically um, what we need to fix on our audio. Well, if it's our audio, if it's our audio or our guest's audio, our audio, for some reason, we do have an issue with Squadcast. It'll like jump our voice volume up temporarily. Time time, yeah. That we have no control over and I don't know what's going on there. But we're using what? The Yeti microphone. We got some decent home podcaster mics. If anybody has good suggestions out there, we're open to it because we plan on doing this for a while, folks. That's right. Yeah. All yeah. right. Well, that's a somber start. And for and for we said two somber starts here. They're <laughs> attacking then. Um normally I ask the questions and then I force Bracken to answer them on the cuff, but this time it's like role reversal. Bracken put out the question to the universe. So I'm blind. I'm blind this time. You're rolling blind. Rolling blind. All right. I call this the Bracken Crocker dilemma here in this in this question. Why can I never train as fast as I can race? This person says, my PR half marathon pace is 736 per mile, but I can't even hold that for a 10K training run. I would say you are in the minority, first of all. Most people are workout superstars and can't hold it over long duration. So you have a good problem. In fact, I would much rather be in your boat than mine or most. And that's where my workouts will outperform potentially my endurance race results. Uh, I don't know. I just want to, I just want to ask you how to do that. Whoever's asking this question, that's a good question. Yeah. I, I mean, that's what I have. I'm absolutely a, a gamer. And part of it is that half marathon pace is tough. And to go out and do that for six miles in training should be difficult. You know, take any distance, take a marathon and try to run it for a half in practice, or take your mile pace and go run an 800 at that, or your 5K and run it for a mile and a half. Those are difficult things to do. Mm -hmm. uh, it's tough to summon <laughs> adrenaline and other good chemicals during training. And you need those in competition oftentimes in order to unlock your top potential. But I'd say thank, thank your lucky stars that you don't have the opposite problem. Well, and I also think like you think half marathon pace, like, oh, that's easy. That's just like a jog. It's, a, it's like so long. But like, really, if you're really racing a half marathon, that is an intense uh, pacing and feeling for quite a long time. Like it's faster than people think, mm -hmm. I believe. And people hear half marathon pace and think relaxed. And that is not relaxed. You know what's relaxed? Ultra pace. That's relaxed. Yeah. We're not even close to that with a half marathon. Well, and realistically, half marathon pace for an elite is right around your lactate threshold. Correct. And that's painful. And for a sub elite or for an average person, if this person is doing seven and a half minute miles, you know, they're running, what would that be? Just a little over 140, right around 140 for a half marathon. So it's a little bit slower than lactate threshold pace, but it's not a crazy amount slower. Yeah. So basically you're running your tempo pace for six straight miles. A six mile tempo is a hard thing to do. 
Yeah. Four mile tempo is real doable. Six is a grind. So yeah, that, that that's tricky for anyone, but you're the one of the lucky ones that you can outperform your training. I would, I would say take the uh, the advice of John Yatsko, who we had on a previous podcast and said, I like to train easy and I like to race hard, meaning he doesn't like to uh, train as hard as he needs to. But when it's race day, he's saved that up. Like he has that good effort in his system because he hasn't burnt those, burnt those matches in training. I would say just feel lucky that that's the way you are and keep doing what you're doing. That's what I would say. I like it. Yep. Why does Kirk never give me kudos, even though I'm out here busting my ass? Half kidding. Who that's is this? Chloe Ella Elsa. <laughs> that's a, an old client of mine, Chloe, who couldn't run a block when we started and now is out crushing like 10-mile runs. Um, her and her husband, Eddie, uh, both have like three followers on Strava, and I'm one of them. It's, they're just getting into the running world. And they've both been killing it, but... Uh, <laughs> And so they have a battle back and forth. Like I'll purposely just like ones and not the other one day, just because I know it gets under their skin. So apparently that works. Yeah, that's it. Chloe, you'll get a you'll get some kudos coming up. You just got to do something that really is deserving. Yeah, I don't, I don't just throw kudos out there for no reason. No, you've got to get on our radar. You got to earn it. Yeah, yeah. All right. Good question here. I like this one. If you're trying to cut down mileage but maintain endurance, is biking or swimming better? Hmm. Subjective. Um, however, cut down mileage, but maintain endurance. I'm going to say that if we're talking lap swimming or if we're talking aqua jogging, very different. I think keeping some sort of biomechanic similarities would be important. So I might go aqua jogging, biking, lap swimming in that order. Yep. I like that. Uh, swimming would be last for me. Swimming itself has very little carryover. Unless you're not in shape, then any amount of aerobic work helps you. But yeah, race specificity. So if you can keep your running motion like aqua jogging or elliptical or elliptico, or that's going to be best. Uh, bike's going to be next best, especially like we've talked about with Faye and with um, who else do we talk about that with? Uh, Yatsko and there's one other. Um, running is not helped by biking as much as mountain running is helped by biking. Yeah. So if your goal is to, you're doing mountain racing or running, then I would probably choose the bike. All right. This is a question uh, from Chauncey517. I don't know what you're saying, so I'm going to say it out loud on here so you can re-message us your real question. RE quality days for marathon training. A, workout would be long run. Second would be question mark. So I think he's asking if your A workout is the long run, what would your second one be? Yeah. Or I don't know if he's asking, is the long run your A workout? Well, we can answer both those, I think, pretty easily. Right. Yeah. First of all, I'm still going to say for the marathon, I believe your A workout is not your long run. I agree. I believe that your A workout for a marathon should be your quality, your your faster, harder quality day. And your long run is still your B workout. I think if your goal is completion, your long runs, your A workout. If you are simply getting into running and you want to complete a marathon, your long run is going to be your most damaging and the one that you need to get in it so that you can complete the distance. But if your goal is to race, your long run is secondary unless you are a long run with a quality inside it kind of person. Mm -hmm. 100%. I agree. And I think most most people listening to this podcast care about performance. So I would prioritize... Um, 
those those interval threshold sessions over the long run. They're both important. You can't really do one or the other. Well, you, you can do one or the other, and then you you're right. You'd have to pick long run. But um, yeah, I'm going quality workout for sure. And then for those workouts, um, it probably wouldn't look quite like traditional uh, track work. I think a lot of times we're doing you know like like tempo or threshold runs. We're looking at longer sustained intervals, maybe like two mile repeats with very short recoveries, um, some longer stuff, maybe a little sharpening as things dial in, but you're working in that, um, those longer, uh, zones and efforts, I would say on the quality days on top of your long run. I agree. I'm not spending any more time on that one. All right. Chauncey, if we got that wrong, my apologies. Let's see here. Doing virtual Boston Marathon in two weeks, any tips on pace and mindset? That's tricky. Mm -hmm. Big city marathons are really good for doing one of two things, getting caught up in the moment and going out way too hard and blown up, or being really intelligent, holding back, and then using the massive crowds and the massive packs of runners to just constantly pick people off and run a great race. You get either of that in a virtual race. Mm-hmm. I think the important thing in virtual, I've had a number of clients, I've subscribed them or athletes, or they've chosen to do some on their own. And the important things are this, the important things are get up as early as you would for the race, get out before it gets hot, make sure you have practiced and prepped with all of your gear and your nutrition strategies, all the same things and, and get off the door. Don't stall. Like the race starts at seven 30, your watch starts at seven 30. Like do everything in the buildup that you would normally do. And if you got somebody supporting you, um, I don't know if you're going to be doing a looped marathon or if you're going to go and run this big route, but having people along the way, even if it's your mom, just driving ahead three miles on your route every time makes like a world of a difference. And if this means something to you, then I would suggest recruiting some support staff because that goes a long ways, um, especially with keeping your foot to the flame in such a long event where you need to, I don't know, stay mentally engaged. So that's what I would do. Yeah, I think the hardest part is choosing your route. Are you doing treadmill or are you doing outside? And if you're doing outside, are you doing looped? Are you doing out and back? Or are you doing a big loop, multiple loops, whatever it is? Choose the one that benefits your mindset the most. Mm-hmm. I would be doing an out and back or a big loop because I don't want to go past my destination with my house calling to me every single lap. Other people need that because, like my wife, she likes doing little loops. She would do a marathon on one-mile loops if she could. That's... That's the way her mind works. And then you can have drinks set out, but I'd identify the loop and then I would get myself someone to do it with me. Even if they run the second half with me or on and off every five miles, ideally someone could do it the whole way on a bike. That'd be nice. I I would get a a pacer, someone to bike to hold a consistent pace. And when you're doing a virtual race, I think it's imperative that you start at the pace that you know. Worst comes to worst, I can keep this pace the entire time. Because when yeah. you go up alone, that is miserable. There's no crowds. There's no packs to latch on when they catch you. Start at the pace you know you can keep, and then you can always go to town in the second half. Yeah, 100%. Uh, start on the conservative side of your pacing goal. Um, and you got plenty of time to work into it. Your marathon's going to be made or broken the last, like, 8 to 10 miles, not in the first. So there's no rush. You can't win a marathon in the first 10 miles, but you can lose it there. Even in the first five, you can lose it there. Yes, sir. Get out and run casually, then pick it up, and then bring it home. Yep. Excellente. All right, here. We have heart rate zones. 
For marathon distance, where should I sit? High zone two, low zone three? Can you refrain? Neither. Can you refrain? Can, can you refrain? Can you say that again, I guess? For a marathon race, where should I sit for heart rate zone? High, low, zo high zone two or low zone three? And I agree, I would say neither. Mid zone four if you're racing that baby for almost the whole way. Yeah, I, I'd say worst case scenario is you start high zone three so that you don't go out too hard. That's the conservative, yeah, conservative yeah. approach, yep. But again, if we're talking completion, go run low zone three to start. If you're talking racing, Correct. you got to race. But I think if you've earned the, the if you've earned the right to approach a marathon, that means you've done enough of the training to warrant holding mid zone three at the very worst for an entire marathon. Now, if you're getting off the couch and you're not prepared, then maybe you want to look at low zone three, high zone two. But like I'm trusting this person has done their diligence and training. And that means you can for sure hold mid to high zone three that entire time if you're just going out to complete it, let alone race it. Yeah. And really this is going to sound sarcastic or really high and mighty. I don't mean it that way. But if you're close to your race asking that question, you're not ready for a marathon. Or at least you're not ready to run hard for a marathon. Mm -hmm. If you are far away from your marathon and you're starting to feel it out, this is what the quality workouts are for. This is what the long tempo runs, the long cut down runs are for. You're going to figure out over time what your heart rate you're going to keep for your marathon is. But if you are close to your marathon and you're still asking this question, uh, it might be time to readjust what your goal is for the marathon and start thinking, I'm going to go out the first half thinking about completion yeah. and then the second half think about com competition. I would think uh, just myself, I bet you I could stay in the high end of zone three for the first four to five miles running goal pace. And that's going to automatically bump me into low zone four by mile six. And I'm going to just rise through zone four from mile six to 22 and then that last four is going to be who knows what my body's going to do. But I would guess that'd be a typical, typical, I don't know, trend. Yeah. And you're going to have cardiac drift. You're going to have a five to 10% drift in your heart rate running at the same effort over the first hour. Yep. And then it's going to get worse from there. And so heart rate is really only useful for the first, I don't know, depending on your, your, your range five to 13 miles. Yeah. Basically your rev limiter to keep you from going out too hard. And then you got to run with your mind and your heart after that, rather than your watch. I would tell that person to go out and go run like low zone four pace for like 20 to 30 minutes in, tra in a training session and just see how it feels and see how they feel like, Oh, on race day, I could extend this out and I could keep going or no, that would be a mistake. I would some, I would tell them to test the waters in like a tempo run of yeah. that nature. You know what, what I really like, I like, uh, I like doing a kilometer version of a marathon. So instead of 26.2 miles, 26.2 kilometers, and you treat it the same way you're going to treat your race day. And this is like four to six weeks out maybe three to five and you go out there and you warm up like a race and then you treat it like a race you run your same heart rate or pacing strategy you know maybe the first six to ten a little bit relaxed and then work the next ten and close it down the last 6.2 and you get a good feeling of a race without taking this huge amount of stress and because it what does it come out to 16 miles yeah, i was gonna say 15 or 16 yeah yeah so it's i think it's 16 but um doesn't, doesn't really matter. It's it's a safe distance, but you'll find out then. If you can't make it 16 in training at that, you got to readjust your pacing. And if you can do it easy, then you know you can bump it up a bit. Yep. I like that approach. Yeah. Thank you, Kirk. Good job, Bracken.
What are typical gut check decision points in a marathon? We've got a lot of marathon questions. Are these all from the, you know, people are, there's a lot of the virtual marathons going on right now. And I think that I have a few people doing the same thing. That must be, yeah. it. And this is all from different people. So, I mean, some people have more than one question, but there are, yeah, there are different, there are at least three different people here. Um, gut check decision points in a marathon. Uh, first gut check that first, uh, five to 10 minutes, your gut check is to sit within yourself and relax. Yeah. That gut check happens right out the gates. You cannot get caught up, not alone, especially. So I'd say gut check one is uh, when you hit the start button on your watch. Yeah. Yeah. Uh -huh. It's it's this teeter-totter that happens. The first part, the first, I don't know, quarter to half of your race, your teeter-totter is up. You got to keep pushing it back down. Don't let it rise too high. Like this yeah. gut check is to keep from being a hero. And then as you get towards halfway point, the weight of the effort starts to hit you. And now you got to tell yourself, I can do this. When you get to 10, 11, 12, 13, it's all right. I've put in the work. I can do this. And once it tips over, now every step's a gut check. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point. I just think, um, I think, you know, you should feel like you are asleep through eight miles, at least like asleep. You're not having to put any ounce of mental fortitude into your pacing quite yet. And then that teeter totter starts to uh, shift a little bit, but I'd say, I'd say the bit most important part would be the, the gut check early, the ego check, we will call it. I think marathons and ultra marathons are liars. And we need to know that. Kirk, you like to talk that easy days and recovery days are liars. The total liars. Marathons and ultra marathons are liars. The way you feel is not the way you are most of the time because something else is coming. You watch any big marathon and there's somebody up in the first five to 10 miles who's just looking really pretty. Their form is beautiful, they're bouncing, they're moving away from people that historically have been better and then they're nowhere to be seen in the second half. Mm -hmm. The marathon lied to them, said this pace feels so easy compared to your workouts. You've been targeting the wrong time, my friend. You're faster than what your workouts were because suddenly you're surrounded by people. You have crowds, you have competitors, you you have your race shoes on. It's, it's usually crisp in the morning. Everything feels good and the marathon lies to you. However, it starts telling the truth around mile 16 or 18 though, doesn't it? It does. But there's a <laughs> lot of people who have won major races that the marathon lied to them the other way where they thought, today's not my day. I am not feeling snappy. I feel terrible. You might even be having some stomach distress and suddenly you get through it and then you're rolling. So it will lie to you yeah. and you just don't trust it. Have you ever had a longer race that's lied to you early in that way in where you went out and said, today's not my day. And then you got like into your rhythm late or mid race and had a great one. I would say that out of all the races I've ever won, more than half of them were that style where I had doubts in the first half and it just turned into, okay, let, let's just make it one more mile before I quit or one mm -hmm. more mile before I let this pack go. And then suddenly at some point, someone drops behind you. You're like, oh, that I outlasted them. You get a little pickup from that or you get a downhill or you get something. Uh, the best example I know of is Des Linden at the Boston Marathon. Mm -hmm. She won a really, really nasty day in Boston where it had that torrential, you know, that, that tropical storm basically. And when Shalane Flanagan, who was one of the favorites had GI distress, she stopped to go to the bathroom at a portage on partway through the race. And Des had been thinking about dropping out because she felt so bad. 
So she waited up for her and said, I got you. Like, here you go. I'll wait up and I will we'll work back up together. Thinking I'll, I'll just pace her back up to it and then I'll drop out by 20. <laughs> it's fine. Like my race is done. Let's, let's support another woman who interestingly ran for a different sponsor and a different mm -hmm. training group. She's like, I got you, Shalane, let's go. And in working her way back up, realized I'm starting to roll again. And she went on and she won the race. That was an amazing performance, wasn't it? it God, was. I love that race. But the marathon will lie to you. So I know we're spending a lot of time on this question, but if mar virtual marathons are coming up and a lot of people are trying them for the first time, do not trust the marathon. Trust your training. How do you know when you're ready to increase weekly mileage or time on feet? Uh, two part answer. One is you don't. Two is when you have proven to be injury free for a long period of time at your current mileage. And you're also proving to generally feel well on your quality days consistently. If you're in the dirt often, or you're struggling through some sort of injury, um, then that would not be smart to increase your mileage. Sometimes it is leaps of faith, though, to just roll the dice and experiment a bit. But um, I guess I, that's all I really have to say about that. I have two answers to that for two different styles of training. If you are doing the classic periodized training season where you are building base, doing workouts, sharpening up, racing, and then resting, my recommendation is that you keep your scripted plan as long as you are improving. If you're improving, even if you think you might be better at a different mileage, see it through. Ride that gravy train to the end of its tracks, mm -hmm. reset, and rebuild at a higher level. Because if you are getting better, you are doing things correctly. And the easiest way to stop getting better is to get hurt. However, if you're the type of athlete who is not periodized, you're just doing that always slightly moving up, slightly extending, then you take you like you said, you take that jump in volume when you when you're not hurt, you're feeling great and you're ready for it. Mm -hmm. If you're questioning, I don't know if I can handle this or it probably wouldn't be smart, then it's not. And if the prospect, if you're feeling good and you have good energy and the prospect excites you, like running more excites me, it's probably a good indication that your body's feeling good and mentally you're ready for it too. If it sounds dreadful, then it's deaf. Don't force the issue until it actually appeals to you. That's great because you can't fake it. No, nope, you cannot. How can you tell the difference between overtraining and general fatigue? Uh, in my opinion, overtraining is going to be a theme through weeks uh, consecutively. Um, and it's going to probably negatively impact your life outside of workouts. You're going to be getting in tiffs with your spouse. You're going to be a little too tired to play with the kids. You're not going to want to go socialize because the couch is hard to leave. And those things are going to be like consistent, uh, versus ge general fatigue. Uh, my opinion is it shouldn't linger for more than a few days before you snap out of it. Yep. Yeah. And it's tricky because everyone responds differently, but mm -hmm. in general, fatigue goes away with rest. Yeah. Or training does not go away with a down day or two. If you're feeling a little bit beat and you take back to back easy days, you're going to probably start feeling really good. If you take back to back easy days and you feel just as crappy on your next two or three days, that's probably not just fatigue. Yeah, exactly. Working through planner fash and mostly cycling, do heart rate zones apply to the bike from running to biking one-to-one? -one? 
No. Uh, well, well, heart rate zones are heart rate zones. <laughs> Do they correlate with exertion? Not at all, because you're gonna you're gonna experience muscular fatigue before your cardiac output is going to hit its ceiling. It's just the nature of the bike. I remember watching the Tour de France. Um, I would watch it every day for the whole month. France, France, Tour de France. Say, and you'd see the heart. You know, they give you the heart rate updates on these athletes, and you would see where they were at. And they were like, they're really pushing now, and it's the final two miles, and their heart rate's at like 165. And you are and you know that if that person was in a foot race, that would be 185. So I remember that sitting sitting pretty, uh, hitting home for me there, but they, they, they are not one-to-one, without question. You almost have to drop an entire zone. Yeah. There are people that will tell you differently, but I just, I haven't felt it with myself, and I haven't seen it with others. And it, also keep in mind that there's a skill component to heart rate. If I jump in the pool right now, I will be killing myself at a low heart rate because I don't have the skill to get my heart rate up. I will burn out before I can even start working correctly. And so cyclists, triathletes can probably get their their closer to their running zones than you or I can because we just don't have the time put in that discipline. So respect the skill needed and lower your expectations for your heart rate. I agree. I'm going to give you an example. I did a 40 mile time trial, which took me like an hour and 50, just over an hour and 50 minutes on the bike. And I just pulled up my data on Strava. You can see it. As soon as you were talking, I was curious. My average heart rate was 158 beats per minute for an hour and 50 long race. And I worked hard as I possibly could. If I had raced that on foot, even on flat terrain, I would easily have averaged 170 for the same amount of effort. If it was a true race, 168 to 173, I would have averaged at least a 10 to 15 beat per minute scale, which is a huge difference. You have higher heart rate zones than I do. And 158 is just above my aerobic threshold. Okay. Well, yours are even higher than I am. So yeah, I would keep 158 was my limiter for my first lap of my ultra in Tahoe. Hmm. You know, so... That puts it in perspective. Yeah, it's we we just aren't capable of doing that. So you got to lower your expectations a bit, or get yourself an assault bike. I can tell you, and get your heart rate up <laughs> on that baby. Yes, you can. Shaving the head. How much does it improve coefficient drag? Uh, do you mean drag coefficient? Either I'm one. out. Of, I'm out on this one. And should it be banned? It improves everything, but it should not be banned because it's my only option. You should see his eyebrows, though. There's a lot of drag coming from those babies. You can see that looking at my eyebrows, how thick my hair was at its peak. Those are some decent eyebrows. I've got eyebrows made for, I don't know, a grizzly bear. Don't don't go there. I didn't don't go, go there. there. Tips to stop or reduce pain, knees in particular, on longer distance runs. Get off the cement. I wasn't even going to say this one at first because I don't like dealing with people's injuries because I feel like I'm on the hook if I give them some advice and they just go use it blindly. But I think this one is worth addressing. Um, I, I, first of all, I'm going to, if you are running on cement, get the heck off of it. That seems to cure some people's knee issues right off the bat. Um, I would also look at if you are an overstrider that can seem to really put that reactive force back into those legs. And I see a lot of people that have that beautiful bounding stride we think we need to achieve, which is incorrect. And so I see knee issues that way. And if you're really having issues, I would, 
I would get off the cement for like weeks in a row, forget your pace, go run on the plush soccer fields and do that. Like even for quality days and see if they respond to that. Uh, first, that would be my first advice. No more cement. Yep. I agree. Address your stride. Make sure you're landing under your center mass, not reaching out. If you're reaching out, you're going to be getting into issues. Address your surface and also start thinking about who you are as an athlete. If you are overweight, if you are a, even just taller and really muscular, if you are carrying more mass, longer runs are typically pretty demanding on your knees. Yeah. And it's worth shortening your run or lengthening other modalities until your body reaches a point where it can handle the current mass that you have or until your mass drops. I don't want to get confused with people here that I'm advocating smaller running weight. However, mm -hmm. there's no way around the fact that the more weight you carry, the more stress it is on your body and on your knees in particular. Yeah. And there's this big minimalist movement and the zero drop movement and all of those things. And they're great for a lot of people. But if you're like the Clydesdale or Athena runner and you're running in your eight ounce trainers, because that's what the pros are doing, like you need to put yourself in more of a shoe. And a lot of times something that simple can fix it. Like what you see people doing, I love my VJ shoes and you see guys training in them every day and going for 20 mile mountain runs in them. But those are like, that's like the 5% of people that could get away wearing that shoe on a regular basis. And so just check your footwear and put more of a shoe on. Don't be afraid to put more of a shoe on. That's, that's one of my biggest advices for people in general. Keep in mind that along those lines, a lot of footwear scales lengthwise, not heightwise with sizes and with your weight. So if you are 6'5 with a size 14 shoe, your heel stack height in your shoe might be the same stack height as someone who's 5'5", weighing 112 pounds in a size 6 mm -hmm. shoe. Yours is just longer. Your sole is, it has the same drop. It's just stretched out. Now, some brands do have the ability to scale their stacks with that, but a lot of them don't want to do that because now your platform height gets so big and it's unstable, but it does not scale to your body mass. So yeah. just know that. So you might have to shoe up. Race it, like you said, racing and racing flats for a 10K might work for a 110 pound Kenyan and it might not work for a 200 pound American. It's just exactly. something you have to consider with your own body type. Not saying you need to definitely change your body type, but be aware of how your body type affects your running. Yeah. And maybe this person is doing everything right and they just need to lower their mileage too. We're assuming, you know, the common mistakes, but we don't know that. Yeah, we don't. Yeah. There, there could be tightness, hip mobility, all that stuff, but we're giving right. broad strokes here. How many days per week should dedicated strength training for back or grip and legs? So I guess upper body and lower body per week for an OCR athlete, not a, not a standard runner, an OCR athlete. Two, two, or two days a week, three days tops. Yeah, I, I would say I'm in a two, well, I'm injured right now, so I'm in a three, three day a week routine. But typically once I'm running a lot of mileage, um, they're just very purposeful two workouts a week. I'm hitting pull strength in one workout. That means deadlifting, pull-ups, grip work, rows, and then push strength in the other, which would mean squats. It would mean maybe split squats. It also would mean overhead work, shoulder press, maybe push-ups. So I do a pull day and a push day, and I add lower body movements to both uh, and upper body movements to both. I think that's the ideal balance if you feel you already have some sort of a strength base. And I actually wouldn't change that for a regular running athlete. I would just remove some of the functional training that our sport requires. 
you take a look at some of the best training groups in the world and they're doing powerful five rep or less training movements for those skinny, lean endurance athletes. Two to three times a week, you can't go wrong. Yeah, and we I pounded this to death and I'm sure you'll just roll your eyes when I say this, but because uh, you've heard it so many times, but running is catabolic, meaning running breaks the body down. It does not build it up and strength training builds the body back up. Yeah, it breaks it down temporarily, but ultimately it builds it back stronger. And so we need to offset, in my opinion, we need to offset our catabolic run work with anabolic strength work and low rep counts. You don't need to go in and do 20 reps of stuff because you're an endurance athlete. You need to go in and do five reps of stuff because you need to balance out all the endurance training you're already doing. High reps and endurance athletes, I think is a bunch of shit. I think you need to start going heavier, more uncomfortable, lower reps. I'll keep saying this till the day I die. So this isn't scripted, but I'm curious to know your take on this. Who would you recommend high reps for? Poof. Putting you on the spot here. Nobody. Because here's what the science shows. The science also shows, let's say you're a built athlete and you're one of those 200-pound stack dudes that still likes OCR but wants to run faster. Go Google high rep weight training in muscle building you're going to find a number of peer-reviewed studies that tells you the 20 to 30 rep count builds a ton of muscle. And then you're going to find a ton of peer-reviewed studies that says the five rep count builds a ton of muscle. You're going to find anything you want. In my experience, and the most, uh, I guess the most highly consensus theory is that the low rep range recruits the most muscle fibers, the most neuromuscular adaptation, actually at times if left alone without inducing a lot of muscle growth. It's the most like strength gains without mass gains. So like you can go either side of the coin here. I, I don't know if I would prescribe high rep stuff to anybody. I don't know. I don't know because that bulky athlete tends to be bulky and their body wants to be bulky and you add 40 reps of something into the repertoire and they're probably going to grow from that too. So it's hard to win that one. Well, how, how does the human body, what is required in order to put on muscle mass? Well, first of all, testosterone. Okay. For women are scared to death to lift heavy because they think they're going to look like some freak woman in a muscle and fitness magazine that they don't want to. Little do they know that woman is supplementing with testosterone, taking creatine, using every hormone enhancing product they can possibly get their hands on and strength training six days a week, often doubles. Okay. So first of all, testosterone, women do not have enough testosterone in their body in general to gain the muscle mass that they think they will. So every endurance woman athlete, in my opinion, should be lifting heavy as shit. Every single one. I don't even care who you are. That's my broad stroke, but yet specific answer for all women. Also, what else is needed to put on weight? Extra calories. Extra calories. Yeah. So if you are not taking in your extra 500 calories per day or whatever it works out to for you, you're not going to become a bulky athlete. Impossible. I mean, 3,500 extra calories to, to put on a pound of fat, okay? Do you want to know how many more calories it takes to put on a pound of muscle? That has to be metabolized, processed, used, and then grown. Uh, you just keep endurance running and you keep eating balance and there's not, it's not a chance you're going to put on too much muscle if you're taking your endurance training seriously. Anyone who's ever tried to put on muscle knows how difficult the process is. You don't step into a weight room and accidentally put on 20 pounds and can't run your 5k PR. If you keep your running volume up and you keep eating normally, your strength training comes out as power, not as mass. 
And I think exactly. it's important for runners to know. I, I know we lose some runners when we start talking about the importance because they say, like, I see you OCR athletes running around. You're just too big to run as fast as you should be able to on the roads. And you are correct. Yep. But we're not big because we're doing powerlifting along with our running. We're bigger than a road runner because we need more mass in our sport than what a, a marathoner would need. That's yep. why. We put that that size on our body intentionally, not just because we sniffed the weight room. If we went to the roads right now or the track, if Kirk or I wanted to, we would lower our body weight intentionally, just like we intentionally raised it to where we're at. Yep. I can't argue with that even a little. I get fired, I get fired up when it comes to that stuff. If you want to get me going on the strength training and weight gain and all that stuff, we could go forever, but we should move on. Yeah, which I got a few questions and uh, lots of funny stories about my making my own supplement. <laughs> I know you did. I've since removed creatine from my, from my maker's formula. Why? Uh, because I'm just too heavy right now. This And I felt like this fit in nicely here. My intent is to lose 10 pounds. And creatine is not helping me do that. Now, it's not adding inappropriate weight to me, but it's weight nonetheless. I have less than half of my meniscus in both knees right now. And mm -hmm. so re-adding the stress of running back to my body, I need to be at a pretty lean body weight. The, adding 10 pounds extra to that is just stress my knees do not need right now. Do you, do you know how creatine, I think this is actually a good little lesson for people. Do you, I'm not an expert, but I know, you know, the surface. Do you know how creatine makes you put on muscle mass? Like how that translates? I want to hear your take because I don't want to well, talk first and sound dumb. Well, I risking sounding dumb anyways by going first, I guess. But in the simplest sense, and there's going to be people that probably can poke holes in this, is in a sense, creatine, when it's saturated into your cells, allows you to replenish ATP at a quicker and more efficient rate. It also helps it, it store just a little bit more ATP in those muscle fibers. Okay. So when you go to lift and you hit your 10th rep and you're like, ah, that's my last rep. I'll maybe go for one more. And then you go for 11 and you're like, oh, suddenly 11's there. And you're like, maybe I got 12. And then you go for 12 and you get two extra reps out of that set that you would not have gotten if you weren't on creatine. And the muscle gain is purely because it allows you to do a little more work in your strength sessions, thus translating to muscle growth. Yes, it causes you to retain water. It basically turns your cells into sponges and they just want to soak up a little more fluid. Um, but really, the strength it's not like testosterone. It's not like doing steroids. You don't grow if you don't do work. It's literally just allowing your body to get a little more out of it because it can replenish in time and it has the stores are saturated. So it allows you to get a few more reps in or a few, a, little, a few more pounds up, which thus results in more muscle growth. That's and, it's, it's that simple. And because I'm not doing crazy lifting right now, my excess creatine weight is water retention. Probably. And you're probably retaining three-ish. How much do you retain when you go on creatine? I did four pounds in the first week. Then when did you stop it? I stopped after that first week. And how much have you lost since then? I'm down in at least three. Okay. Yeah. I retain usually three to five pounds on creatine once I'm soaked up and saturated. You got to take that uh, diuretic pre-workout supplement oh. yours and then weigh yourself after that. Unbelievable. That stuff. Unbelievable. So anyways, um, creatine out, water weight out because I don't need it on my knees this moment. If I get close to a high rocks or something that requires real power, I'll start that back up so I can get the most out of my lifting. Mm, that became a tangent somehow. 
Yeah, but important. Yeah, I agree. What signs do you look for that shows you should switch your training methods? Stagnant and improve, stagnation and improvement. I had yeah. one word on my mind. Stagnation. Stagnation. Hell yeah, you did. If you are improving, man, I'd just be hesitant to ever risk it. Yeah. I, I, Even if you're working with a coach and you couldn't stand the coach and you were improving, I would maybe switch a coach and tell them we need to keep doing what I was doing. I just need a different personality because if it's working, you are among the lucky people. Keep mm -hmm. doing it. Yep. Yeah, I agree. Just stagnation. If you feel like you haven't improved in, I'm not going to say months because sometimes it's even gets blurry within months. But if you're sitting here like a year, you're like from last year to this year, and I don't feel like I'm much different than I was last year at this time, it started to either, you know, look at increased volume, increase intensity, increase your vertical gain or loss, uh, work on specific strength work, some sort of like sharp change to your training program. I like that you gave those examples rather than maybe I need to become a low mileage athlete or maybe I need to switch from the five pace training theory to polarized training that's only does threshold work. I, I like that you're not switching theories. You're mm -hmm. changing up the things that need to be changed. Intensity, duration, recovery. Yeah, and stimulus. Yeah. Yeah. I like it. Kirk, yeah. Kirk I appreciate your mind. Haha. <laughs> Uh, recovery meals, protein shake. What's your best suggestion? We're not going to get too far into this. We've talked about this a lot, but we agree with them. We don't think it's as important as you have to get it in the first 20 to 30 minutes or you're screwed, but we do believe in taking in protein after workouts that are destructive in nature. You know, go look at the back of a chocolate milk jug and look at how much protein and sugar and carbohydrate is in that. I'm not suggesting chocolate milk necessarily, but those ratios have been, as far as optimal recovery, they've been kind of scientifically proven as a, like a generalization for endurance athletes and try to mimic those. So I don't even know what it says, but it's the right balance of su simple sugars and easy to absorb protein. And you want to get a mix of both. But chocolate milk, look at a chocolate milk nutrition label and shoot for that. I like that. You can, people can fight me on it. That's fine. But I think it's pretty close. We're, at that point, we're splitting tenths of a percentage in games mm -hmm. you yeah. know do you remember the do you remember the um in college a lot of us were big on taking a product called endurox i took endurox because a buddy of mine kept it in his locker and somebody came in one day my coach or whoever it was i don't remember and endurox was expensive that was like an expensive cutting like edge 50 a tub and the tub was not big no it was small it was an endurance recovery drink and we put the label of endurox next to the label of chocolate milk and they basically echoed one another, but chocolate milk was like three bucks and Endurox was like 60 bucks. And then we're like, what are we, what are we doing here? And I'm fairly certain Endurox even talked about that. Chocolate, oh, maybe they did. chocolate milk has the perfect correlation between its carbs and its protein and its, and its sugars or whatever. And well, the milk industry pushed that for a while too. They, they would, they would pay like a Michael Phelps to sit there with a chocolate milk mustache and say that, but their science behind like the, the gramming and dosing is pretty accurate. And Durex was tasty. Here's what we used to do. We used to lift after our track sessions mm -hmm. at Whitewater. That's what we did. So we'd get done. We'd be dragging. We'd plot into the locker room, plop down on a bench, and Eric Keene would get out his – he was a 151, 800-meter runner. Mm, his name sounds familiar. Uh, he, he was a couple of years ahead of me. So he's, he, you probably would have crossed paths, but um, he would pull out his Endurax tub. We'd all pour it into our 20 ounce water bottles. We'd shake it. We'd drink it, take a big sigh and we'd head into the weight room. Yeah. Oh, oh, oh. 
So maybe not the best timing right before the workout, but you know what? It That's really right. doesn't matter. And it tasted good. Is Endurox in business anymore? I wonder. I think it still is. I looked it up about a year or two ago just to see. That's a good jog down memory lane there. I forgot about that yeah, product. Pinkish red liquid just was gold after a workout. Yep. OCR Hosick being a jokester, how does it feel to pour cold water on your head when it's super hot out? Same as anyone else, but it hits me quicker. My hair doesn't get <laughs> Even more. Man, people like to just twist the knife on that one with you, don't they? Yeah. You yeah. got to post a th another throwback of you with like a full head of hair because you had like thick hair, like thick hair. You you went down on your own terms on the hair front, not on your head's terms. Nope. Nope. I saw the right on the wall and I said, I'm in, I'm in the driver's seat here. That's right. You did. Derek Rubis. Is he asking when he's going to be on the podcast? No, he's not I asking. Rubis. First of all, Derek Rubis. Let me just go on a side note with Derek Rubis. I I appreciate this gentleman named Derek Rubis more than you know. He's probably the biggest distance running fan in America. He follows everybody. He's so into the sport. He's running like 100 mile weeks on his own. And he's like, he he deserves to be on a podcast bracket. He does. I'm, I'm going to get Rubis in for like a short guest appearance. Rubis, we're going to get you on one day just to talk about your fandom. Okay. we want I want you. Bracken, you have to do it for me. I'm on board. Okay. Don't make it seem like I'm the, the roadblock here. But Rubis always messages me and says, when can I get on your podcast? I love your podcast. When can I get on? So I figured that was his question. Uh, uh, he's, he's messaged me that as well, but not today. Okay. Oh, boy. I swiped away. How do you find the motivation to work out when you don't want to, but you have to? Hmm. Rubis. See, here's what Rubis does, okay? Rubis contacts like a high-level runner and asks the high-level runner to be his coach for a week. So with no periodization, no real cohesiveness, he gets a new training plan every week from a high-level athlete because he's just a fan. We all know him. Everybody knows Rubis if you're a high-level distance runner, right? And so Rubis... Especially the track and field world. Right. When Rubis, when I coached Rubis, <laughs> I gave him OCR work and he was sore as shit for like six days. But he all, always wants it. I want to run like 70, 80 miles a week and I want to keep this going. And then he goes from one pro's training plan to another pro's training plan. He's been doing that for like years. Rubis, you just need to take like a week and a half off, dude. And you just need to like relax in the sun of Arizona where you live and just give your body a reset. And you're going to get that fire back, brother. That's what I think. There's yeah. my advice. Kirk gave you the holistic answer. I'm going to give you the, the Mamba mentality answer. You think about all the people, Derek, who are saying you can't do it, all the people who doubt you, all the people who don't think you're going to PR next season, and you conjure up every one of their faces, and you have them in your mind, and you charge out of bed, and you hammer that run. Rubus, I think you should just take a break and not listen to Bracken. Mama I believe in you, Rubus. I believe in you. How to balance running strength gym workouts? How much is too much? Um, we've answered this several times, but I think that if you're doing, like we said before, two to three strength workouts, as much running as you can handle without getting injured. And if you're not walking around like a zombie, you're doing a pretty good job. Yeah, I agree. It's like, everybody's so different and you need to experiment with that over time. Now's a great time to find that line, I guess. Yeah. Um, I find it, I find you have to get more specific with the leg and lower body work. Uh, than the upper body work. A lot of times upper body work helps me recover for my next run. 
whereas lower body work will take away from my next run. So there's a big difference there too. You'd have to differentiate, I feel like. Yeah, I agree with you on that. Now, we are only halfway through the questions. <laughs> so we're going to have to do another one in what, two, maybe we'll cut it down two weeks. We'll do two more training Tuesdays and then do another one, maybe three. Short, shortcut the loop a little bit because we went long without one. But I'm just going to do two last questions because they feed into each other pretty well. Okay. First one. This is from Austin Azar. How yep. to use plyometrics with running. I do single leg hops, springing hops, knee tucks, lateral hops, etc. All less than 10 seconds with full recovery, five to 10 minutes total. He likes to currently do them before hard run efforts. Is it better to do strides and plyo on easy days instead and leave it out on the hard days or should I keep it before my hard days? I like that question. Yes, it is. He's also one. he's also a studied athlete, and he's a very he's a very good one. When when Austin's not injured, uh, dude can dude can run. He's your classic engineer. He's intelligent. Mm -hmm. He's mechanically minded about his training, and he studies everything. Hard days, hard easy days, easy. You keep doing exactly what you're doing, brother. Whether it's before or after your quality workout, or as a separate session on that day. Uh, you're a cerebral athlete, Austin. Uh, you're one that's got my respect. Um, and that just confirms it. Like, keep doing it on your hard days and then low, keep it low on your easy days. That's just my opinion, though. Yeah. Yeah. If you're not compromising your quality day, you're doing fine. Keep it there. If you're starting to have issues, then maybe consider. The only other place I would really put it is if I was really separating my strength work and my running entirely at different parts of the week, I would add it to my strength days. Yes. But that's that to me. That's the only other option. I do it in the weight room, or I do it on the track before I get going. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. That's uh, I don't know. I think we have probably similar philosophies on that. Yeah, that's one of two. I have one or two. I just want to get to real quick that have been sitting in my uh, screenshots for a bit too. But okay, then here's my last one. Is it possible to do too much compromised running? Got thinking about this after your Ian Hosick interview. Not sure what your thoughts are or what data will show, but I used to do exclusively compromised running, and I found I got too comfortable with slower cadence, and it affected my non-compromised running over time. It's exactly what I would have said would happen if you did too much compromised running, so it sounds like he was his own experiment there. Yeah, yeah, you can, you can do too much. Absolutely, it will mm -hmm. affect you. But it highlights the importance of something that Ian was worried about with what we believe about compromise running, which is just going out there and slogging and flailing away at it for the sake of being tired. When yep. Kurt and I come off of tuck jumps or, or lunges or even a heavy lift into running, we are running a purposeful pace and cadence and effort. We're not just whatever we can keep moving here. We're, we're running with intent the same way we would run a normal interval workout. And that keeps you from kind of watering down your workouts. But absolutely, you can do too much of it. And that's to be avoided. I mean, I think you can get a lot of adaptation from once a week, even if you're new to OCR work. Once a week is plenty if it's part of a purposeful training run program. Um, you're going to see a lot of benefit just from that. Yeah. So, yeah. Is that your last one? I mean, I have 21 more to go, but we're going to save them for next time. Well, these have been in my queue for a minute here. So as in like a month, so I need to just get a couple of these out that I've screenshot. Um, this gentleman, Jeremy Whitley wants to dive into RPE. Mm -hmm. Like, what is it? How it relates to intensity, heart rate zones, breathing says, I know it's a tough topic, but do you think you can tell 
metabolically by your breathing, uh, et cetera, uh, versus like watching your heart rate zones. What I have found, I, I like this question because I've learned from my own mistakes. You know, when you have like those days, those rare days where the skies open up and you're like floating, your heart rate's high, but it feels effortless. And you have one of those great days where like running seems easy, but the data, if you just looked at the data, you would say, oh, like Bracken worked hard today or Kirk worked hard today. The data shows that, but RPE wise, it was a good day for you. You ever had those days? Yeah. Yeah. I have found that my heart rate data will not lie eventually. Like I will still feel the impact. Like, oh, like I had a tempo run, but I feel like it was only an RPE six today, which means rating of perceived exertion. So I can go hard again tomorrow because yesterday didn't seem that hard, even though I was hitting. But if my heart rate zones tell me like, dude, you went hard today, even though I had one of those miraculously, you know, lightning strikes good days, I will feel the effects of that workout the same way, no matter what, whether I my RPE was high or low. The data always seems to come through with how my body ends up recovering from that effort. So that's what I've noticed. The way you feel during doesn't change the actual impact it has on your body. I like yeah. that. If, it, if that wasn't true, if you got runner's high in the middle of a marathon, you wouldn't need a recovery day. Right. That's really the only point I wanted to make about his question was that I always go off the data, not RPE. Um, again, that's personal, but yeah. I like RPE a lot for in-workout exertion levels because during OCR specifically, we can't trust heart rate mm -hmm. as exactly. specifically as you can on a road. Um, I don't think anyone races by heart rate on track, um, on the track, but the, the way you would on the road, it's not as one-to-one -one in OCR because we have so many crazy variables and you have spikes up and down throughout a race. So I really mm -hmm. like knowing my exertion level and comparing it to what my heart rate is on different tasks. So eventually you'll know on a steep climb, a 158 heart rate is not equal to, in my mind, to a 158 on the flats because it's causing different muscular failure. Even if cardiovascularly it's the same, it mm -hmm. might blow my quads out where it wouldn't on the flats. So I like pairing it. I also think it's important to make the distinction in RPE scales. There's the RPE that almost all of us talk about who aren't fitness professionals, which is one through 10. And that's really easy because everyone understands what 10 it feels like. Mm -hmm. And everyone knows that one is like standing still. So you can generally figure it out. But the real RPE scale is six to 20. Okay. And as such, it's very confusing for people that aren't trained in what the six to 20 scale really is. So if you're like, well, I'm a 12 right now, that wouldn't really mean anything to most people. So there's the weightlifting kind of RPE where you can look at it like, um, you know, if you're doing eight reps, an RPE of 10 means that you could have two more in the bank. Or you could do the one through 10 RPE, which is a 10 is all out race effort. Or you could do six through 20, which a 20 is almost unattainable race effort. Yeah, yeah. Do you know why they chose six through 20? I don't. Now, I can't verify if this is why the original idea was done, but one of the ideas for sure is that it's supposed to correlate to roughly what heart rate is. Okay. So sick, like a heart rate of like a six would be like resting heart rate? Roughly multiplied by 10. Okay. So a 12 would be like a 120 heart rate. Got and it. A 20 would be a 200 heart rate. 
That makes sense to me. I can wrap my head around that. So not then you start thinking like, oh, I'm an 18 right now. Well, yeah, that's probably 5K pace. And yeah. that puts in perspective what a 20 is. It also puts in perspective what a 16 is. A 16 for me would be right around my Hard. my my tempo run. So when you start thinking about it, then it makes sense. But for most people, one through 10 makes the most sense. And some people even like using one through five, keep it real simple. Five, I'm racing or doing intervals. Four is tempo. Three is high end aerobic. Two is really easy. And one, I'm not moving. Hmm. I like that. Although that like six through 20 is based off of like general heart rate data and averages, which is like flawed, but I, I like it. Okay. I got just a handful of questions from Brett Mazza. Um, and a couple of good ones. And then that's all I got for today. And I think we're just going to have to save these for the next one, the rest. Um, one, how much do you care about VO2 max? And could you share what you think ideal values are? Floor is yours. I don't care about it. I look at it like I look at IQ. It's a good indicator that you're smart, but it doesn't guarantee you're smart. You know, mm. there are some people with a super high IQ that just don't seem to be able to use it well. <laughs> right. An example of that is the valedictorian of our high school. Um, man, there's no way she's listening. Failed her driver's test three times. Sure. She's incredibly intelligent, very book smart, had some trouble with real world applications of that. I'm sure she's super successful now, but there are a lot of people with very below average intelligence with pretty good real world smarts. And mm -hmm. I don't think it's a correlation that some of the highest, highest peak VO2s ever measured were never world champions. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I don't care, but it's a great indicator. I also do not believe that there is any magic to VO2 max pace. The pace that you're running at your maximum oxygen uptake, I don't think it's any more important than any other pace that you could run at. I think that it looks really nice on paper that it should make sense. This was my VO2 max is the pace I was at. If I work at this, then, then what? That's kind of the question. Mm -hmm. I don't think there's any magic there. So that's my answer. I don't care about it, but it's interesting to look at. Um, you know, if you look at anybody like top 10 or probably 20 or maybe even 30 at like the Spartan world championships on the men's side, I would roll the dice and say everybody's running a 68 or higher VO2 max, probably above 70 um, as a generalization. Now, there's exceptions to that rule. Uh, Rhea Coble, okay, for example, runs like a 52 or a 55 or 58 at highest. They're always lower. Correct. They're lower. But let's say Lindsay Webster is pushing 70, even as a woman, okay? Um, I'm not like perfect on these, but like Rhea Coble's lactate threshold is so high that it doesn't even matter what her VO2 max is because she can work at such a high percentage of that before she tips the scale. So lactate threshold is an anaerobic threshold or aerobic threshold. All of those really are almost more important than your VO2 max when it comes to like endurance performance. Now you combine a high lactate threshold with a high VO2 max and you have yourself a world-class athlete. The reason Rhea Coble can run so well is because that threshold is so high. Her VO2 max isn't terribly impressive. There's probably a few dozen women in the sport that are higher, but she performs because of where that threat, that lactate and, and aerobic thresholds are for her. That's, and that's just another case. Yeah, it, it's such a great example. If people lot, lot, always want a magic number to shoot for. If there was only one number 
that I could know about someone that I'd say, this is the most important, it would be your lactate threshold, that anaerobic threshold. If mm-hmm. you can get that higher, you are going to be a very good athlete. And you're right though, you're not gonna find many world champs with a low VO2 max because it's a indicator of talent. Correct. And fitness. But you will, you will find people with a high VO2 max who are not world champs. Yeah. Uh, well, a good example of the other end of the spectrum is Kevin Donahue. Kevin Donahue had a 72. Now, he's a very, very successful age group athlete, but a 72 should mean that he's pushing into the upper 14s in a 5K. It has to do with biomechanical efficiency. Right. It has to do with so many other factors. He'll be the first one to tell you. I am too squat. I am too bulky. I am too football shaped to be a great, great runner, but he's a very successful OCR racer because of his other skills. Yep. And put him on an assault bike next to Ryan Atkins and they may go toe to toe for a while. Yep. But it's running. It has, is an economical value to it with your biomechanics and efficiency that factor in. Uh, I think I'm, I think I tested post-collegiately when I was not training and I was like a 69 or a 70 conditioned. I bet you I'm a 74 maybe at most, but like, that's what everybody across the board that you probably look at is probably upwards of 70. I've never tested. Yeah. It's interesting. I would assume I'm, I'm pretty, I'm lower than, than that because of, because my, my lactate threshold's lower as well, but Mm. there's, I've never actually cared because if it tells me I'm higher than what I'd expect, that's detrimental to me mentally. And if it tells me I'm lower, like I don't need to need, know that. It doesn't change mm-hmm. who I am as an athlete. I'd rather just train. I would say that the most important part of a VO2 mass uh, max test is getting your aerobic threshold and your lactate threshold. Numbered. 100%. That is worth getting the test alone. Yeah. Yep. I agree. Uh, we'll move on to the next, uh, another good one. I'm getting ready to do my first long base build phase after tackling some FKTs, which I think a lot of people can relate to. And I'm wondering if you do anything besides slow, steady runs in this phase, do you ever mix in intervals or anything spicy? Back in. No, but yes. Hard strides, hard strides, maybe some two hundreds after some of them. And I usually let one of my runs per week trickle up into more of a tempo run in the second half of it. If I need real spice, I get it through lifting or uh, a Metcon of some sort, but I keep short, spicy accelerations, but no true interval work. Yeah. Um, I would say that one day a week I say, okay, I'm going to plan on going out and like, I'm not going to worry about my effort level. I just want to like work hard today. And that can mean a variety of things. Usually I work into that run and compounding home and that counts. That might be as most intensity as I would get. And then I like just finishing some runs with even like 30, four by 30 second sprints and calling it good. Nothing where you're working for an extended period of time, except maybe giving yourself permission to let loose on like a long steady run once a week. Uh, same could go whether you're running up or down hills or on flats. I think that's like a safe way to build and still build some, you'd be surprised how much fitness you can build just doing that, to be honest. There are people who race really well off that. Yeah. Uh, Last one then, and then I think we can call our quits for today, is what do you think separates elite and age group athletes? And when would you suggest someone make the jump? Assuming training is the same, it's talent. And assuming talent is the same, it's training and consistency. 
Yes. And you make the jump when you're mentally ready and you're not going to cause a hindrance to anyone else on the course. If you are not going to take last place in that field, you belong there. And if you're mentally excited, think by that, go for it. Do you think last place is the is the actual, like, I could beat one person in elite. I'm ready to jump. I mean, I think you're being a little exaggeratory. I know you don't believe that. What I mean, what I truly believe is that if you are totally left behind by the entire field and you're getting passed by a large chunk of the women's field that's passed starts 10 to 15 minutes later and you're walking between obstacles and you don't belong in the elite field. I think mm -hmm. a good way is that if you're consistently podium, making the podium in your age group, you are ready for the pro field. Just like in triathlon, you have to qualify up to the pro. And the way to do that is through overall points and, you know, going top three and making podiums. And that's the way you can look at it here. If you are one of the best age group athletes, you are going to be just fine in pro. If you are consistently getting beat by age group athletes in the pro field, you're probably in the wrong field. Yep. I agree. I, I like to use the, the, like the two thirds principle to make sure that you truly are in the place that you belong. And that is if you can, if you can finish in front of the last third of the elite field, like you compare your times at the same race, we all run the same courses. Mm -hmm. um, then I think you can do it without hesitation. And maybe that increase in competition will even provoke better performances out of you. But I like that, that if you can beat one third of the field, then you have permission, full green light. And if you're somewhere not quite there yet, it's a conversation to be had. That's just like a hard line I like to draw, but. I like looking at it like high school. You start with freshman or JV, then you move up to varsity once you're successful there. And I think it's the same way here. Prove yourself. If you're not sure, but you're a stud athlete, there's no shame in winning an age group podium and then moving on up. No. It's way better than going out and taking, getting passed by a woman because you're walking in the first two miles and then mm -hmm. going backwards. So yeah, go go cut your cut your teeth in the age group, earn it and bump on up. Yep, I agree. Uh, that's the last question I had. Um, I just have one um, ask from the listeners, and that is, we haven't received a review in like three weeks or four yeah. a month on, on Apple Podcasts or any of the others, and uh, we don't plan on going anywhere. We plan on continuing to squeeze this in in our daily lives, and it has been a hustle, hasn't it, Bracken, for us to make these happen? Yep. Your, your, your life is picking back up with COVID being released a little bit in terms of the restrictions. It's getting tricky. Yeah, we're, we're working hard for you guys. And um, would love if you haven't given us a rating or review yet to just go and do so. I know it seems like a pain in the ass to like, oh, I got to open it up and write it. It'll take like 30 seconds and make it genuine. If it's not five stars, if it's four or three and you have some honest feedback, like the only way we're going to get better is by reading that. So um, just because you don't have necessarily the most positive thing to say doesn't mean you shouldn't write one either. I just want some, we just want some honest feedback and I would love to see some more reviews come in if you have been on the fence or have been meaning to and have forgotten. Uh, it would mean a lot since we're just hustling to make this happen every week on top of busy lives. And, um, I'm not afraid to ask. So if you do that, that'd mean a lot. Absolutely. I'm going to finish it off with OCR stars. Yeah. If you haven't considered it yet, Consider it. It's going to be the virtual race of the year. It's hosted and funded by Hunter McIntyre. 
and it is going to give a lot of the people in the sport something to do. And it's going to give a lot of the pros in the sport a way to make ends meet at the end of this financial year here. So it's very important to us on both sides of the coin. We work with in our audience is a lot of the open and age group athletes that need some direction and something to go after. And all of our buddies are, the, are pro athletes or a lot of our buddies are pro athletes who are scraping by right now. So let's support mm -hmm. the sport. Go sign up. If you can't quite sign up yet, get in Hunter's ear and bug him until there's a sign up link so we can all do this competition. Yep. I, and if you don't know what we're talking about, go back and listen to our last episode with Hunter. I believe sign up is September 1st. And I'll tell you what, I don't know about you, Bracken, but that dude, I'm sure he called you after the episode. Uh, he is so fired up. And if there's anybody that is just radiating enthusiasm in general, it's Hunter. And he will follow through with this. This is going to be a big event. Hunter does nothing small. And he always backs up what he's going to say. If there's one thing Hunter does is he says he's going to do something and he does it. And I have full faith that he is going to make this a very well-tuned epic event. And it's the first thing I've been excited about competing in uh, since February, which is, yeah. which is a long time. I just had that conversation with my dad that if Hunter, like say what you want about him, he's a man of his word. He is. And he means what he says. Yep. And he is as in on this as I've ever seen him about anything that's not his own training. Yep. So 100%. Let's support that man. All right. Thanks for listening. We're going to give you a part two here coming up. Maybe next week, maybe the following. We're going to squeeze all the rest of the questions we didn't get into uh, then. So let us know what you think about our audio and pack your bear spray. <laughs> See ya.